In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Monica Mazay joins us this week on Money Tales. When she was a teenager enrolled at a private high school, Monica's parents told her that she'd have to be financially self-sufficient after graduation. This meant Monica was on her own to pay for the formal education needed to achieve her dream of becoming an attorney. Monica tells us that financing college with loans makes you look at your education a little bit differently. She knew she was making an investment in herself and realized that she couldn't afford for it to be a bad investment. Today, Monica is a certified family law specialist representing clients with a concentration in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Los Angeles. She represents high net worth clients throughout the divorce process and in mediation. Monica also drafts and negotiates cohabitation agreements, premarital and postmarital agreements for her clients. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three Money Tales conversation topics Monica hits on in this conversation. First, how knowing your financial goals and objectives is a key starting point for divorce negotiations. Second, she shares tips for having productive money conversations and agrees with the Money Tales approach of talking about your values before you get to the numbers. And third, ideas for bringing up the premarital agreement topic with your fiance. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Monica Mazay. Hi, Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie, and I'm here with Sandy, my co-host. Hello, Cammie. How are you today? I'm doing great, Sandy. How about you? I'm doing well. We just had another financial parenting book club discussion, and I wanted to share with listeners that the book we read was called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. It's a book that was written about 20 years ago. It was fantastic. I think it's a great manual for all of us having money conversations, whether they're with our kids, with our partner, with ourselves, with friends. It's just a wonderful book. Some of the things that they look at really is how you can analyze yourself in a conversation. Ooh, that sounds powerful. Because even those conversations in your head starts telling stories. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Those stories may or may not be true. Oftentimes they're not. It was just really interesting, the strategies that they provide to help the reader have very productive conversations and making sure that the conversations are safe for everybody involved. And they give some wonderful tools and ideas for what to do when it seems like the conversation's taken a turn and it's no longer safe for the participants. So the financial parenting group got a lot out of this one and I wanted to share that. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. I'm putting it on my reading list. 
Well, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Monica Mazay. It is great to have you on Money Tales. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan, so I'm very happy to be here. That's so nice of you. Well, would you start off by introducing yourself and please provide a couple pivotal moments in your life that really impacted who you are today? So my name is Monica Massey. I am a divorce attorney and I practice in San Francisco, Silicon Valley and Los Angeles. I think a pivotal moment for me was graduating from law school. I put myself through college and law school and that was kind of the epitome of everything I had been working towards. And that day was very special. It was a reward for all my hard work, but also an exciting start to the next chapter. So that was definitely a turning point in my life. Mm, That's a key one. We always like to start back in the beginning because we find that our money stories are often quite influenced by how we're raised. And if you would share a little bit about your youth and how money played a part and any conversations that were happening in your home around money. I grew up in San Francisco. My dad worked as a district attorney. My parents did not earn that much money and they really took everything they earned and put us through private elementary and private high school. And I understood in high school that there were three of us children that there wasn't going to be anything for college, that I was going to be on my own. Okay. There wasn't really a lot of direction. What did that feel like? That's big news, especially when you go to private school, I would imagine. It is. You kind of don't know what you don't know. I think if someone told me that now, I'd probably be deer in headlights and terrified. But when you're 16, 17, you don't even really know that you should be concerned. So I wasn't. I just thought, oh, okay, well, I've got to figure this out. I have to figure out what scholarships I can get and what financial aid I could qualify for. I just kind of put my head down and thought, I'm going to figure this out. It makes you become very resourceful. I'll tell you, because I was paying for everything myself. I very rarely missed a class in college or law school. Oh, wow. Is that right? Yes. You feel very invested when you know that you've got to pay all this money back (laughs) that you just, you know, took out a loan for. It makes you look at your education a little bit differently. I felt very much like this was an investment in myself that I was making and I couldn't afford for this to be a bad investment. So... I was typically in the first or second row and I tried not to miss a class. (laughs) Monica, were your parents helping you understand what it meant to take loans to pay for school? No, my parents were very hands-off. They actually both went to college later in life when they were maybe in their late 20s. My family is actually fairly new to the U.S. My parents are first or second generation in the U.S. from Italy. So... My grandparents didn't go to college. My extended family is, hasn't been in America very long. So I think that plays a big part in the discussions in a household around money, around finances, around education. I'm really the first generation that's having those conversations with their kids and my cousins as well, because we've lived here, we've been educated here, and now we're making money here. So when you're in a family that is fairly new to the U.S., you're not going to kind of get that same direction from your parents. There's a big learning curve and you're kind of on your own a bit. So you were really figuring this out. I'm curious to know, Monica, 
What influence did paying for your education have on what you were deciding to study? Not much. I decided in seventh grade that I was going to be a lawyer. And I never really changed my mind after I uh, made that decision. I went into college knowing that I was going to go to law school. I always kept that in mind. And I would only borrow enough to pay for my tuition and my living expenses. In the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, you could get loans for a lot more than what you needed. But I tried to be really judicious and not take out more than what was absolutely necessary because I knew that I had to pay it back. It's so healthy. Monica, are you someone who has the budgeting spreadsheet out? How did you manage things when you were going to this investment? No, I wish I had. I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) So I wish I had had there weren't podcasts, there wasn't YouTube in the 90s. You know, I wish that there were money tales because then I would have learned something. It was really just a lot of trial and error and just trying to keep track of things. Now I think there's just so many more tools out there to do that. Free software you can download. There's just so many resources to learn about budgeting and money and finances that didn't exist then. And I definitely could have used it. Somehow I got by without it and guesstimating, but it was probably not that accurate and probably not the way to go now. (laughs) Monica, when you were doing all this trial and error as a young adult, paying her way through the world and getting educated, were you having many conversations with friends? My friends were kind of all in different boats. Some of my friends, their college law school was paid for by their families, which is great. I had other friends that were more like me and doing it on their own. I thought it was interesting to hear everyone's story and hear kind of what everyone was doing. I do think it probably shapes what someone wants to do coming out of school if they have other resources other than themselves. But you get a mixed bag of all different backgrounds and all different financial circumstances. Everyone had some slightly different variation and everything in between. I'm glad that you're bringing that up because there's so much wisdom in having these money conversations. And even though people are coming from different starting places and have different situations, we can learn from each other. We can inspire one another. We can learn what to do and what not to do. So it's great that you were doing that. And I'm curious, in law school, when did you decide to become a family law attorney? I did not decide until my third year. I happened to take family law because it started at noon and I didn't want to wake up early. (laughs) Only reason I picked the class. All the best classes start that way. I know. And I loved it. I was like, this is so interesting. The cases I was reading were about real people. It was around the time that the first same-sex custody cases were being litigated at the California Supreme Court. I loved everything about it. It was my best grade in law school. My professor found me a job before I graduated. Everything just fell into place. And I have to say, 21 years later, I still love it as much as I did when I took that first class in law school. That's so neat. Tell us a little bit more. What do you love about it? Well, one, as you can imagine, it's never boring. (laughs) No. (laughs) No uh, one case or family is like another. My clients are real people. You know, I'm talking to real people sometimes every day, definitely weekly about their life and their future. And I feel very invested in the work I do. And it's also great to hold a client's hand through the process of divorce and then hear from them a couple of years later when they're, that's behind them and they've started a new chapter and they're 
happy and have moved on. And it's just the greatest feeling. And for me, I only handle the financial part of the divorce. So I'm very focused on the finances. And so getting someone to a place where they have financial certainty and they're financially comfortable is very rewarding. Monica, I can imagine that some of the money conversations you're having with your clients are pretty intense. What have you learned about talking about money with clients that could help our listeners have productive money conversations in their daily lives? As you know, no one likes to talk about money. So just coming to the table and being open to talking about it and having a real discussion about detail is important. Also, what I've found is every client that I've had, everyone comes in with their own background about money, their own ideals, their own family history, their own expectation for the future. And it's really important for me to actually have an understanding about all of that when we're talking about what this is going to look like for them financially, what this money means to them, what do they want to do with this money. Before we even start talking about numbers and figures, I actually talk to them about where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years or 15? What things are important to you, whether it's philanthropy or charity or being able to have money to give to your children so that they can buy their first home. To factor all of that in to see if we can accomplish sometimes not all their goals, but maybe their top two or three. So the conversation actually starts in a very general, high-level, goal-oriented way before we even get down to the numbers. And I think sometimes people skip that and they want to go right to the numbers. I think it's a mistake. I think it's going to be a lot more productive And you're going to have a lot better outcome if you've really nailed down what's important to me and what are my goals before you even talk about numbers and spreadsheets. We completely agree with that. When we work with clients, we start in the same spot. And it is so important when making decisions about money to know what's your relationship with money? What are your values? What's most important to you? What is the purpose of this financial capital? So I think that's great that it's coming up at the very beginning of your process, working with clients through a divorce. I think you probably see it even more often than we do, how money and emotions can get tangled. And what do you do when you see that happening with a client? How do you help them work through the emotions of the decisions? Because oftentimes, it's not that, oh, my soon-to-be X won't give me this or they'll only give me that. It's the restriction. It's that controlling feature that can drive those emotions and can really cloud people's ability to make decisions. I think the most important thing is to recognize that. And just by me bringing that to the client's attention to say, is this really about money or is this about something else? One example that comes up a lot is the family home. People feel very emotionally attached to the home. It becomes something that they want to hold on to in the divorce, and they're very adamant that they have to keep it. But sometimes it just doesn't make financial sense for them to keep it. It might be a big house, all their kids are grown, all the costs of maintaining it really wouldn't make sense. But if I start off just telling them that, I'm not going to get anywhere. So what we first have to talk about is, well, what does the house represent to you? What does it mean to you? Why do you feel it's so important? And if I can at least get them to recognize that it's important because it reminds them of their kids or it's the last thing that they have to hold on to of this prior life, then we can move on to talking about the next chapter and 
Well, could they see themselves in a different place? Maybe that they can decorate themselves, a place that they choose just for themselves where there's new memories. A lot of the time, they don't even recognize that they're doing it. They don't even realize that the house is only important to them for these emotional reasons. Then when I point out all the money they could save, if they didn't hold on to it, they're more receptive to it. Monica, you work with clients who are setting up premarital agreements, prenups. And I think of that as a conversation that's hard to have because the couple's getting married, they're in love, and it can suggest that there's some concern that it won't make it to the end. There'll be a problem. How do you broach these conversations? How do you get clients getting comfortable and even talking about the emotional side of money in the prenup work? In the last 10 years, there's definitely been less of a stigma to these agreements and they're less taboo. So I'm finding that it's not so difficult anymore, that people are more receptive to the idea of this and less offended if someone brings up the idea of getting one. Is that just from socializing the idea of it? I think so. You hear in the media about celebrities having prenups or Kim and Kanye. And so now people kind of know what they are. They seem that they're talked about more. Younger generations definitely don't have a problem with them. Also, as it's more and more common now to have two spouses working, both people have a vested interest in talking about some of these financial issues. They both have skin in the game, so to speak, where a prenup is usually now important to both people. Either person might start a business now during marriage. You know, we don't have as many traditional relationships where one person made the money and the other person only worked inside the home. Now, both people, there's something that they're interested in talking about in terms of a prenup, but it can be an awkward conversation. A lot of my clients ask, how do I bring it up? A lot of times people will say, well, my family really wanted me to bring this up so that it's not their idea. Or, you know, my financial advisor mentioned... Yes, blame it on us. That's what we always (laughs) tell clients. Right? My financial advisor mentioned, I think it's something we should talk about. Or even I listened to a podcast about prenups and it seems really interesting. Maybe it's something we should talk about. Some people think, well, I don't have any assets or I don't have a lot of money. But you don't need to have a lot of money or be rich or famous for a prenup to be important. And the example I give is... Eight years ago, I had a client come to me. She was in her early 30s. She didn't have any assets. She didn't own a home. She didn't have a 401k. But she had an idea for a business. And she was very adamant that she wanted a prenup because she wanted her idea and this business that she was just starting to be her separate property. She told me the idea for the business. And I remember thinking inside, I didn't say this out loud, like, oh, I don't know if people are really going to go for this, but okay. She wants me to do this prenup to protect this idea. So be it, I'll do it. We do the prenup. Five years later, I'm in the airport. I'm buying some magazines before my flight. And there she is on the cover of Forbes. And the business is now valued in the billions. One, I mean, don't ask me to assess your business idea. (laughs) It'd be horrible. But second, see, she didn't have anything. She had an idea and she was young. But she knew enough that she wanted to address it. She wanted to make that business her separate property. And look, you never know. The business could have bombed and been worth nothing. And maybe she paid me a couple thousand dollars for this agreement and never needed it. But look what happened. So you really don't need to be rich or famous for a prenup to make sense for you. That's right. And a lot of people don't understand that when they get married, 
they're entering into a contract and that state law will dictate what happens. So prenups can be very helpful because it allows the couple to make choices that they want about how their money will be used during the marriage and after, if there is an after the marriage. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you wouldn't go buy a car and not read the contract that you signed or buy a house and not read the purchase agreement. But every day people get married in every state across the country and no one tells you what you're signing up for. You don't get a pamphlet. You don't have to read something and sign it that you're aware of what the law is. Really, the first time you find out is if there's a divorce. And my clients say, I didn't know I was signing up for that. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty shocking if you think about it that you're entering into a huge financial contract with the state and you don't even know what it says. And what a prenup really is, is you're making your own contract. You're deciding your own terms. And except for the kid stuff, you can agree to whatever you want to financially. I don't think people really understand how important and powerful that could be. Yeah, there's a lot of flexibility there. Hey, Monica. Having these very important money conversations with clients day in and day out sounds exciting. It sounds like it's something new every day. How do these conversations impact your own personal financial life? Well, I tell people, I feel like I've been divorced like 20,000 times because (laughs) I've gone through every client's divorce with them. I'm divorced myself, but I feel like I've just been divorced so many times. And I definitely take away and learn something personally from everyone's story. As a woman and as a mom, I think what I learned from my clients, especially who were older women and that were divorcing, was no matter what you decide to do, especially when you have children, always keep one foot in the door. Now, I've always practiced and I've never not worked. But in hearing their advice or kind of seeing how their life you know, played out from a financial perspective, What I tell my friends and my girlfriends is when you have young children, a lot of people choose to stay home during those years, which I think is great. But my advice would be always kind of keep one foot in the door, whether it's maintaining your business contacts or still meeting people for lunch. And it's not just about divorce. I mean, your spouse could get hit by a bus tomorrow and you might have to pick up financially. It's to just not completely check out. Always have a means if you needed to jump back in that maybe you could. From a financial perspective, you never know when you might have to contribute financially to your own support. Tell us how you've thought about success. How do you measure it, Monica? I measure success by doing what you enjoy. I think you can be good at something and make a lot of money, but if you don't like it, what's the point? So I think it's finding something that you enjoy doing every day. If you have a pit in your stomach, if you have to go to your office or get on a Zoom or a phone call, I mean, that just seems miserable to me. I don't think that I would be even good at what I do if I felt that way. So if you feel passionate and you enjoy what you do, you will be financially successful at it. Have you thought about your own financial success over the years? Going back to the high school student who learned she had to put herself through college and then through law school because you already knew you wanted to be a lawyer. As you reflect back on your career and your life and the financial aspects of it, tell us what that feels like and how you're thinking about it. It was a lot of trial and error. (laughs) Not having a financial safety net, whatever I did had to work. There was just no other alternative. 
And I also think what I realized early on was how important marketing is in yourself being your own brand. Even before there was YouTube and Instagram, I realized that I had to market myself as Monica Massey, not wherever I worked, because that could change. But it had to be about me and myself. And so I made an effort pretty early on to, if I wrote an article, if I spoke, that I was really promoting myself. And I don't think as people, we do that enough. Yes, I worked at this firm or that firm at any given time, but it's really about me, the person. And also letting people know a little bit about you personally helps to create a brand and a connection with people. I also realized, how do you get clients? Like, how do you drum up business? No one told me. So very early on, I signed up for, as a new lawyer, every event that had networking in the name, business networking, networking happy hour, networking cocktails. And I would go to these events and put on the name tag and inevitably... I would exchange a bunch of business cards and nothing really came of it. And I thought, well, this isn't working. So I decided I'm just going to go to things that I really enjoy and like. And for me, the San Francisco Ballet is one of those things. Growing up in San Francisco, it's always been very inspirational to me. So I'm not officially involved with the ballet, but I will be at every ballet event, every fundraiser, every opening, as many performances as I can go to. I'm just there. I'm happy to be there. I'm in a good mood. It's something that I love. And inevitably, people are going to talk to you and then they'll ask you what you do. And some of my biggest cases I have gotten through just being at these ballet events and just socializing and being there. So my advice to people is go to things that bring you joy. You're going to be in a good space when you're there and just talk to people. That's the best way for people to get to know you. They're going to ask what you do. And that's marketing. Marketing doesn't always have to be, here's my business card. Are you getting divorced? Just find what you really enjoy and like doing. Everything is a marketing opportunity. As a marketer myself, I really appreciate you pointing out both. How important your brand is, your personal brand, and bringing that to life and connecting who you are as a person to that brand is so important. And then your message around networking and I do remember younger in my career going to things that were so not fun in my book, maybe fun for others who attended. Awkward. Yeah, awkward, (laughs) painful, nails in the palm of my, you know, kind of like, oh, I got to hang in there. So Monica, really appreciate you bringing up such an important message. I'm curious, as a mom, how have you brought your money experiences to life for your kids and created opportunities for them? Well, I have one daughter and she's 12. So we're just starting to talk about that and have those conversations. She's already aware of my personal story. She sees my situation that I'm a working parent and kind of self-supporting. And so we talk about finding something that you really enjoy doing. She has not decided what she wants to be when she grows up. But I emphasize, instead of saying, you want to be a doctor or lawyer, What would make you happy? What would you like doing every day? What do you think is interesting? I don't think a lot of people in my generation were given that freedom. It was more, well, what's going to make you money? And I think as a society, we have pivoted from that a lot. And I think that's very positive. It should be what makes you happy. And then from that will flow success and money because you're going to be good at it because you like to do it. So that's been my overall message to her about financial health in the future. 
There's a theme running through everything that you're saying, Monica, in terms of being very intentional, understanding what your purpose is, where your passions are, and what brings gratification and making decisions based on that, which is refreshing to hear and very important. What's your next money conversation going to be, Monica, and who's it going to be with? My next money conversation will probably be with a client because I really do have these conversations pretty much on a daily basis. This client in particular that I will be talking to later this afternoon, she's coming out of a very long marriage and she's going to have this pot of money and we're going to talk about what she wants to do with that and what that's going to look like and her future. She is 60 and she's got a whole next chapter. So for me, that's an exciting place to be. We're going to be talking about the future. We're going to be talking about what her goals are with the money that she does have, how she envisions using that, spending that, how she envisions living. I mean, these are conversations I love to have. They're actually very exciting. Monica, thanks for sharing so much about your story and then how you help others in this story, this conversation you're going to have with a client. I think about what a neat opportunity to hold someone's hand through an exciting time and probably a scary time. And if you don't have someone like you and others having these conversations and being comfortable around that, it's really hard to do. So thanks for what you do. And thanks for sharing that with our listeners on Money Tales. Thank you, Monica. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been very fun. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. Oh,